0: Dun dun Welcome to the Notion Club Podcast. I'm Justin Hall, and joining me is Dr. Stephen Hicks. Stephen is Professor of Philosophy at Rockford University, and the author of five books, including Explaining Postmodernism, Nietzsche and the Nazis, and most recently, Liberalism, Pro and Con. His book, Explaining Postmodernism, is perhaps the most clarifying explanation of postmodernism as a philosophy and cultural phenomenon. In it, Dr. Hicks explains how postmodernism developed from history, and how it has crept into every aspect of our society. Today he and I will discuss the defining characteristics of postmodernism, and also why philosophy is not merely some academic discipline. Philosophy is for you, with real, practical application for everyday life. This is episode 17 of The Notion Club. Well, Dr. Hicks, thanks so much for joining the Notion Club to talk about what I think is one of the most important conversations to be had culturally speaking, which is postmodernism. And we'll be talking about your book, Explaining Postmodernism, which was, I believe, originally published in 2004, but is still completely relevant and maybe even more relevant today than it was when it was published, which I think says a lot about our culture. It's been one of my favorite books to consult, just to clarify what's going on around us at the moment. It's been a very helpful resource, and I'm really excited to to share it with our listeners. Maybe we can just begin with an apology for the study of philosophy itself, because it's been my experience that, you know, in, in conversations with different people, with friends, um, even highly intelligent people, it seems like the common opinion of philosophy is that it is simply... Uh, an academic discipline that is too esoteric to have any purchase on everyday practicalities. But like I was saying, you know, postmodern philosophy is so relevant to our culture; it seems to have taken over our everyday realities. You know, at the very least, nobody can can ignore its aesthetic considerations between you know the the art that fills up our museums and the the architecture on our uh, on our city blocks. So I guess the first question is, why is it necessary, or, or is it necessary at all, for the average person to have some awareness of the philosophies that govern their society as well as their minds? And, and feel free in answering this to, to sort of give some background of yourself as you first struck upon philosophy as a discipline, and, and even postmodernism as a subject.
1: All right. well that's uh, there's a lot packed into that so the yeah the first the core issue is the the perennial question about the relevance uh, or not of, of philosophy why even bother with it particularly since as you point out as critics point out in many cases the questions are abstract esoteric and right? seem uh, seem irrelevant and I certainly think it's true that a lot of uh, philosophy is uh, is irrelevant uh, you know there's a all kinds of questions that people will raise, and if they uh, um, answer them a certain way, then that will take them in, along the path of, of uh, irrelevancy and so on. But I think the best way is to not even start with the society level, but to start to think about your own life right, as, a, as an individual, particularly as you become older and you develop your mind and you start to realize that you have your whole life ahead of you, and that's a complicated project. And there are so many different things that you could do with your life. And how are you going to answer those questions? Of course, one possibility just is to be passive and not think about those things and let other people dictate your answers to you, and that there are pre-existing slots in life, and you'll just fit into those slots and do what other people have decided for you. But to the extent that you exercise your agency, that you you, you think for yourself. You're going to decide your own beliefs. You're going to decide your own values. You're going to control your own actions and go off on a course in life. That's necessarily going to take you in a, in a philosophical direction. So uh, just, you know, uh, what is your career going to be? And that already is going to raise a lot of, a lot of questions. You know, what, what do I want to accomplish with my career? Well, I want to make a living, but hopefully I want to be satisfied doing so. If, if I say I want to make a living and I'm earning money to do so, well, what are the things that I want the money for? And what are the really valuable things that I'm going to spend my my money on? Because we know sometimes we spend our money on things and we have buyer's remorse after. That means I didn't really think it through or I didn't know myself. So uh, the longer term the questions like that, even just about the nature of money and how much money and what I want to buy, it's going to think need you to think about your life. What do you want your life to be? And then if you start to think, you know, in my work life, for most of us, it's going to be the thing that we spend more time doing than anything else, even with our friends and, and family in many cases. And you realize that your life is your time. And then how do you want to spend the time of your life on the things that are the most quality things in life, and again, you have to answer that question. Well, what are the really quality things in life? And you're entering into the territory of of philosophy. Or if you think about another hugely important area to all of us, you know, our relationships with other people, uh, friends. Uh, and when when we're younger, we go through these very philosophical moments, even though we don't realize that we are we are being philosophers, right? We, we start to realize that we like some people and we don't like other people. And sometimes people betray us and lie to us. And uh, sometimes we, of course, disappoint other people when we're young. We make mistakes and then we realize that that had a certain effect and we critically self-examine ourselves. And sometimes we decide, okay, I'm going to change for the better or with respect to other people, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to hang out with that kind of person. And all of those are questions about character and questions about value. And we're asking, in effect, if I really want to have genuine friendships in my life, I need to be a certain kind of person, other people. I need to associate with certain other kinds of people. And I have to be able to recognize the real deal as opposed to the frauds and the people who are going to kind of poop out after a few months and so on. And that's then going to set me up for, you know, choosing, uh, you know, perhaps a, a lifetime partner, someone I want to get married to. And there we're asking very big questions. You know, I'm going to spend my whole life with this person, sharing everything intimate about me and hopefully everything intimate with that person. And you can't, go into that and, uh, well, unless you're just throwing darts at a dartboard, (laughs) unless you become philosophical. Mm -hmm. And then you have children, and then uh, most uh, parents of newborns are extraordinarily philosophical, because they have this, this, this child, and they start thinking, this child could become anything, and what do I want for this child? And they start to think about the child's whole life, and they then become teachers and characters, and then they have to model themselves. And then, of course, you know, we go to funerals and those are also, you know, sad, hopefully sometimes celebratory moments if the person's had a good life. But what do we find ourselves thinking about all of the philosophical questions? You know, did this person have a good life, the best possible life? What can I learn from them? Uh, What can I pass on to my children and so on? So I would say uh, to the extent that you are an active minded person who has some level of ambition for your life, you have to be philosophical. Uh, and the more philosophical you are, the better you have a chance of, uh, of coming up with self-understanding and policies and leading your actions in a coherent fashion. That's going to help you put together a, a fruitful life. Now that's just to talk about at the personal level. You also you mentioned the social level. You know, we all live in a society and in many cases, our society's customs. Many of them are implicit. They're just kind of baked into the culture and we absorb them often uncritically when we are young, but uh, we start to uh, think critically about them. You know, do I want to uh, adopt that? Or do I want to, uh, to, to reject that aspect of my culture? Uh, do I want to reform my culture? Or if I think my culture is going in the right directions, but I realize that there were some cultural preconditions that had to be in place for that to happen. Uh, how can I identify what those were so that I can contribute to culture going in, in the right direction? So what I would say is and this will you know lead into the third part of your question about postmodernism, you know, we do live in a culture just, just for example that uh, you know most of us take for granted that our life expectancy at birth is going to be say 80 years or so. And we think in terms of our life's ambitions and planning for our lives taking that for granted. But then when you get a little bit of education, you start to realize how shocking and unusual that is historically. You know, that 100 years ago, average life expectancy was still in the 50s. 200 years ago in the United States, uh, life expectancy was in the 30s, in the 30s. So what made it possible for us to more than double life expectancy in the span of a century, a century and a half? And then, you know, if we think that you know, living is a good thing, <laughs> and that uh, some things have happened culturally to enable people to have more life and to live less pain-free, uh, and to reduce infant mortality rates, uh, so that you know, when a child dies, it's a tragedy for us now, as opposed to well, you know, two centuries ago, you would expect one third or even perhaps half of your children to die before they were age five. Uh, that we have extraordinary amount of freedom and of course tolerance and respect and diversity and science and technology and most of those things didn't exist three or four centuries ago where did they come from and if we think that those have some value Uh, The case for philosophy is going to be that there are philosophical underpinnings to all of those, you know, principles of tolerance and individual rights, and thinking rationally and critically and methodologically about the way the world works, and believing that human beings have agency and that they can control themselves and their environment to make the world a better place. All of those are philosophical assumptions that lots and lots of smart people came to believe a few centuries ago, then became part of the culture and we are in that culture now, uh, and so on. And then, of course, we get to postmodernism, which in the last generation or two has been hypercritical and skeptical about most of those claims and is mounting a counterattack. And if you're bewildered about where that is coming from, again, the answer is going to be that there was a lot of philosophy that was done that uh, set the stage for that counterattack on kind of civilization that we think most of us anyway is, uh, despite its flaws, a pretty magnificent thing.
0: You uh, describe beautifully the, the relevance of philosophy on a personal level, and you know it, it seems like in your discussion of philosophy as a personal means of discovery in one's own life, there's an assumption of human dignity, and just the way that you were describing philosophy as relevant to me. And hopefully at the end we can, when we're talking about what our response should be to postmodernism right now, we can return to this idea of the dignity of the individual. But it seems like one of the pernicious symptoms of postmodernism is that it, it denies the dignity of the individual in favor of a more collective vision of groups. Um, that seems to be one of the broad characteristics of postmodernism. So, so maybe, in in that yeah, sense, much, but you're right.
1: Yeah, we'll come back to that. But yes, much of postmodernism, not all of it, mm-hmm. but much of it is uh, very anti-humanist right, and mm-hmm. conceived as such.
0: Well, maybe we can, um, maybe you can give us a, a bird's eye view of the history of postmodernism, then it's sort of its overarching characteristics. What are the important characteristics that define postmodernism, and how do they develop? That's another yeah huge uh, huge question, and yeah thanks for the uh, the plug of my
1: book. Yeah, so in, in the book it takes a couple of hundred pages to lay out the various strands right that come together. But I think the the short version is to say that you know, postmodernism is aptly named right. It's postmodernism, and so what it's doing is it's saying that modernism whatever, and we'll come back. You know what do you take modernism to be? Modernity, the modern world, modern philosophy, modern culture that that has failed, or that it was a fraud, or, or, or that it has reached its end, and we need to go beyond that and be informed by a non-modernist or an anti-modernist right, framework. So then uh, that would be to push the question back, and then you say, well, what do we think of the modern world? What are the core traits of modernity? That's another term that then needs the re- uh, definition, because in in the visual arts, in literature, and other sub modernism is used differently. Uh, I'm coming from a philosophy perspective and an intellectual historical perspective, and the modern world usually dates back to the 1500s. So if you think about what's going on in the world around 1500, it's an extraordinary number of revolutions right, that are are occurring. Obviously, you know, one of them is uh, that the renaissance is now in full swing in uh, in northern Italy especially, but it's the era of Michelangelo and his slightly older contemporary Leonardo da Vinci, uh, uh, Raphael, and others. And so we have the, this, this revolutionary era of art that's going on. And it's very close cousin humanism, right? The idea in this Speaks to the theme of the dignity of the human being and the dignity especially of the individual and the idea that every human being should be able to cultivate his or her talents in a broad range of areas uh, and become the best person that he or she can be. Uh, 1492 uh, Columbus crossed the ocean blue here at the childhood rhyme. So we're clearly entering into a new era of globalization where The Native Americans, who are not yet called Native Americans, come to realize that it's a much bigger world out there. The Europeans come to realize there are two whole new continents as well. And so the post-Columbus world is the modern world as well. We find the beginnings of modern approaches to religion, the Protestant Reformation breaks out successfully in the 15 teens, and religious life is not going to be the same. Obviously, there's a A whole century of pretty much, uh, you know, religious nastiness that goes on, but out of that comes this idea, look, we can either just kill each other off in the name of religion, or we can agree to live and let live. And then one of the characteristics of modern religion is this tolerance principle. I might think that your religion is just wrong or you're not being religious enough is wrong, but I have to put up with it and you're going to have to put up with the space right for it for me. And the idea of separating church and state Making religion a private affair, right, for individuals. All of that is characteristic of the modern world. Also in the 1500s, right, there's a lot going on. Right? <laughs> we find the beginnings of, uh, of science and scientific method. So astronomy is starting to separate itself from astrology. Chemistry is starting to separate itself from alchemy. Better scientific methods and statistical methods are starting to come along. Copernicus in the middle part of the 1500s, then Galileo in the next generation, Francis Bacon born in 1596 with scientific methods. So, the idea then is, right, the modern world is all of these revolutions, right, globalization, art, science, uh, a little bit later, technology toleration, uh, limitations on what the government should be doing with respect to people's private lives. And then uh, there's a, there's going to be a glorious revolution in, in, in Britain in the 1600s, a lessening of the power of the monarchy significantly, the rise of kind of democratic parliamentarianism and a resurgence of republicanism, and so on. So that's, you know, all of the stuff that we will study when we take, say, courses in Western civilization, and of course then Western civilization starts to export itself to other parts of the world, but another part of modernity has been Western civilization also being open to other cultures and being willing to say, wow, maybe uh, uh, you know there, there are things that we can learn from the Middle Easterners and, and from the Native Americans right, and from the Chinese. And uh, you know, Western civilization really becomes the biggest kind of import-export culture uh, ever, right, historically speaking. And so we're into a new world now. The idea of postmodernism is to say that yes, all of that was going on in modernity, individualism, reason, science, this idea that we can progress and that we should be tolerant and so on. But we don't believe that anymore. By the time you get to the middle part of the 20th century, and particularly into the last third of the 20th century, there has been a shift among leading intellectuals, particularly in the humanities, and particularly in philosophy that says we don't believe in reason, individualism, scientific method, this notion of progress, and this notion of you know, respect for universal rights and tolerance and so on. That's all a fraud or it is flawed philosophically. We need to reject the whole thing and go in another direction.
0: So uh, maybe I'll just ask you about, uh, you know, in, in attempting to define postmodernism, you know, something that seems to me like a cliche that I've heard a lot is that, you know, postmodernism cannot be defined, but this seems to me to accept. Let me yeah, just pause you right on that. So sure.
1: of course, any skeptical position, right, cognitively or epistemologically, uh, is going to be fraught with paradoxes. Mm-hmm. Right? so you know, if you're going to see even say something like postmodernism can't be defined, right, for that to carry any cognitive content, it means we know what postmodernism means, and we know enough about it to be able to say that certain things aren't possible for it. Mm-hmm. we also know what definitions are and we know what it means to negate, and so we've got this idea of what definition is about, this idea of what postmodernism is about, and we're saying that the two can't. So we're already making a lot of positive cognitive claims mm. that presuppose that the terms we are using have meaning. Right? So how you can say that without just blabbermouthing is already a, a problematic statement. But yes, you're right. The, that's a standard rhetorical gambit for postmoderns to say, Uh, You can't pigeonhole us. You can't define us. Right. And so on.
0: I was I was just going to say it seems that, you know, that statement to accept some of the assumptions of postmodernism itself, like the meaninglessness of language or another thumbnail sketch definition of postmodernism as uh, skepticism toward metanarratives, which I think came from Leotard. Yes, um, and I, I'd like to get into some of the contradictions of postmodern thought. But maybe you can comment on on the. It seems to me that skepticism itself assumes some kind of rationality. Like when I think of skepticism, I immediately think of, you might say, the hyperbolic skepticism of Descartes, which was, uh, you know, possibly the definition of rationalism. But the idea of skepticism toward a coherent view of the world, while at the same time one of the most interesting interesting and fascinating things in your, in your book about postmodernism, explaining postmodernism, is you point out that nearly all postmodern philosophers are leftists, which seems itself to defy the broad claims of postmodernism, that, for example, you know, every interpretation of reality is equally valid, or indeed that no metanarrative is acceptable without skepticism. If that were true, you know, I would think you would be able to find postmodernists along the entire political spectrum, because the claim seems to indicate that, you know a, a right-wing vision of the world is just as valid or invalid as a left-wing vision, but you, you go through pretty systematically all the postmodern philosophers are actually not only left-leaning but very hard leftists. So maybe you can explain why is there this paradoxical yet symbiotic relationship between postmodern doctrine and leftist, specifically Marxist doctrine.
1: You have a real talent for uh, formulating very deep but complicated questions. <laughs> and so the challenge is going to be to, to keep an answer within uh, just a few minutes of, mm. uh, of interview time. But yeah, the, to start off with, uh, you know, the first part of your question is about skepticism and various strands of skepticism. And so the idea is that yes, uh, postmodernism does represent a very you know, hard boiled skepticism and it comes at the long, uh, the tail end rather of a long tradition of skeptical arguments developing in, in, uh, in philosophy. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, one of the things you can do is go right back to the beginnings of modernity and Descartes is uh, is often I, I disagree with this characterization, is but here, Descartes is often characterized as the father of, of modern philosophy. You know, he was born I believe 1596 and started publishing his major works in the late 30s and 1640s and, and on into the 50s and so on. So the timing certainly is correct, but there is a, a kind of skepticism that was characteristic of the early modern world. And so what they were doing was reacting against the traditional notions of knowledge, right? That you, you get knowledge by listening to authoritative sources and largely uncritically accepting the traditional sources. So, uh, there is a, a say, a text and in that text, It's a holy scripture that was directly revealed by God to certain prophets. And you don't question God, you don't question the prophets, you don't question scripture. You accept that as your foundation and you might then do reasoning but within the assumptions of that scriptural tradition. Or you might say it's not scripture alone, scripture is complicated, theology is complicated. There are some specially trained and authorized individuals who know how to interpret scripture. And if you are not one of those people, uh, and that's going to be 99.9% of the population who has the special training, then what you should do is accept on faith or accept uncritically the interpretation of scripture uh, as delivered by these authorized individuals. So what the kind of skepticism that the early moderns are engaging in is to say that we should be skeptical about both of those kinds of claims, right? Claims that are based on mystical or revelatory insights, or that are claims that are based on here is an institution with a supposedly infallible head who speaks directly to God sometimes, uh, and uh, we just have to accept on faith all of these claims. So the, the skepticism initially is to say that we should be skeptical about those kinds of claims, and if we don't understand those claims if there's not good evidence that or logic that can be presented to me i should set those aside and we should try to uh, to rebuild knowledge on a basis of a uh, of facts that any individual with normal cognitive faculties can ascertain and people can train themselves to use logic and then perhaps more sophisticatedly scientific method. And that's how we genuinely are going to, to acquire knowledge. So that's a kind of skepticism directed against earlier kinds of knowledge claims. But it's not a, a skepticism thoroughgoingly because the, the argument then is there still is truth and knowledge. It's just that the traditional methods don't deliver it. And if you actually want to get truth and knowledge, you have to go through these other steps, and sometimes it's very difficult steps that you have to go through in order to get real, real knowledge. So, uh, you know, Descartes, for example, is using his uh, his method of doubt as a as a hyperbolic method, and it's pretty corrosive. And you know, many modern philosophers don't think you can get out of. Cartesian skepticism, but you know Descartes himself didn't want to be a skeptic. He was just using it as a device to try to put knowledge, uh, as he thought, on a better better foundation. So the point of uh, modernity would be to say that we should be skeptical initially about certain kinds of claims until they have uh, proven themselves or good evidence has been presented to my, my mind. But they do leave open the possibility that knowledge is possible. It's just that it's not easy. It's not delivered to you in a pre-package. You have to work for it, and you have to guard against certain kinds of mistakes and so forth. Now, what then happens is that uh, knowledge then goes off in a different direction, and uh, uh, or the knowledge pursuit, rather, goes off in a different direction. We start to develop more sophisticated understandings of individual responsibility before you can make knowledge claims, and uh, we start to develop much more sophisticated tools, statistics, mathematics, experimental methods, Uh, and then some of them are social methods, you know, peer review and formal criticism and so on, and to say that particularly on new and untested things, this is the process that you have to go through before you can make a knowledge claim, and it's going to be hard and sometimes uh, you're going to have to admit that you've made mistakes and change your mind and so it's going to also be a character driven process and you shouldn't accept things too easily you really should put things to to the test because the the stakes are high but then as we start to realize just how complicated the world is and how complicated in some cases the scientific and other methods are that we need to acquire truth uh, and in the early stages of developing all of these tools, all of those are subject then to criticism, including skeptical criticisms and some people will then say well you 've got this theory of mathematics or this theory of abstract formation or this uh, this hypothesis about the foundations of logic, and we poke holes in in all of that, or you say it 's all observation based but we 've got illusions and hallucinations, and how do you uh, and so there 's a whole battery of skeptical arguments that are part and parcel of what good philosophers that are going to do to test all of these new modernist methods that are being developed. And then there's going to be schools of philosophers who come to be convinced by the skeptical arguments. So long story short, modernity in the philosophical tradition is really coming into its own in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, on into the 1900s, but there's a counter reaction. Those who come to believe that all of the skeptical arguments that can be developed about uh, individual open-mindedness, about perception, about concept formation, about logic, mathematics, experimental method, and so on. The skeptical arguments win, then in in a more sophisticated skeptical position. And this is where the first generation philosophers were, by my reading, in the 1950s. So if you uh, think of, and i we put some names to it, you know people like Richard Wardy and Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Leotard, whom you mentioned, all of them are then young men in their late 20s and early 30s. All of them are uh, PhDs in philosophy, and all of them are deeply engaged with epistemological issues and cognitive issues, and all of them are uh, in a context where philosophy has reached a very skeptical place. Right. There's been the collapse of, of, of logical positivism, right? broadly speaking. Uh, in the Anglo, in Anglo-speaking world, there are various forms of neo-pragmatism coming along, which have very skeptical bases. Uh, in the continental traditions as well, existentialism is in the ascendancy, and it is uh, very skeptical at its bases and well. So they are kind of swimming in this great lake of skepticism and they come then to believe that that is correct. We have to be skeptical about everything. And then a phrase like being skeptical about meta narratives, that is to say any story that claims to be comprehensive and coherent about a big chunk of reality or even all of reality, we just don't buy it anymore. So then the question is what does philosophy look like and what does everything look like if we don't really believe, that humans are cognitively competent to figure out the way the world works. And then we start to say, well, maybe it's not about knowledge. Maybe it's not about truth. Maybe it's just about power. Maybe it's just about I've got my desires and desire satisfaction. And if we don't believe that individuals can think for themselves and change their minds and be critical and argue civilly, well, then maybe it's just that, you know, individuals are conditioned into having certain values, but different groups have different values. And so all we can do is have this kind of nasty collision socially of of values. So you enter into very different philosophical
0: territory. Hmm. So would you say uh, the corrosion of that kind of skepticism to the point where there is no other... (laughs) purpose for philosophy, except for, as you mentioned, power, that then a narrative like Marxism, which is all about power, is the perfect thing to fall back on. Yeah, Marxism is
1: going to be one route, and that's one that, uh, the the last part of your earlier question uh, raised the political issues, and I I set that aside for now, Mm -hmm. that's going to then be attractive to, so so if you combine then the skepticism, the corrosive skepticism about metanarratives, but you combine that with a certain value, or uh, morally or politically, that is more left-leaning and Marxist. That's going to take you in a certain direction. And of course, Marxism is already a certain kind of power politics. Right? It's you know that we can't uh, come to socialism through democratic and republican methods by argument. Rather, there's you know, fundamental class conflict, and everybody's just conditioned into their class's values and so all we can do is have a violent revolution and basically kill off all of our political uh, enemies and uh, then just you know recondition the next generation of children into into our belief system but it's also uh, important to point out that if you want to go the power politics direction if you come to be skeptical about the power of reason and individual judgment There are, you know, particularly in the European context, right-wing versions, right, that then say, you know, instead of Marx, substitute Nietzsche, who's a kind of aristocratic, you know, anti-Marxist, anti-socialist, anti-democratic person. If your value sympathies are saying, yes, nobody really knows anything, but we all just have our value agendas and our will to assert our value agendas, uh, right, upon the world, then uh, you'll just characterize things in a, in a more right-wing uh, fashion, using right-wing in this 19th century European fashion. So yeah, you can choose to go the Marxist route or you can choose to go the, the Nietzschean route and just see it power uh, all the way down, but the politics are going to be going to be different. So the Marxists will say, yes, we are, you know, exercising violent power but on the path or on behalf of the weak and the oppressed because our sympathies are with them. And the Nietzscheans are going to simply say, well we are exercising power on the behalf of the, the rich and the powerful and the assertive and the great creators, and we're just disgusted by the sheep like weak, right? People who are at the you know the low end of society because they don't have any human potential. But it's by embracing the oppressors and the exploiters uh, and, and letting them assert their power agendas on all of society—that greatness can uh, can come in the next generation. So it just becomes a. Uh, uh, no, I think that's a totally a false alternative, but that is the alternative that people <laughs> will face. Now, what is interesting to come back to? Yeah, your earlier question, and then and then this one as well, is that in the first generation, things are cleaner in one sense. By the first generation of postmodernists, I think. 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. So, Foucault, Derrida, and the others are young men in the 50s. They come to prominence in the 1960s in their career, and then they become like the grand old men in the 70s and and 80s. And the same thing is, is true for Leotard and, and and Rorty and so on. And it is striking that they, along with you know, you know I mean, I've done this, but don't take my word for it. You, know, you read the top 20 or 50 leading postmodern thinkers, and not all of them are philosophers, many of them are philosophically informed historians or or, or legal theorists or literary critics and so on, deconstruction and critical legal theory and so on. Uh, uh, but all of them are on the left and quite far on the left politically. So there is a question then, why and this is the you know the, the question that you you put earlier. Why is it well, if you're just skeptical about values, nobody knows the truth, uh, anything goes. It's all just subjective values. Then why aren't people all over the political map and all over the religious map and all over right, whatever? Instead, we do find a fairly narrow uh, uh, range of political opinion. They are all far left, non-religious, adversarial toward. Uh, and they all agree on those the particular things that they are opposed to. Even, of course, they have some differences amongst each other. Now, things things do start to get messier as you get into the 90s and then on into the 21st century, because then. Postmodernism is entering into its second generation or even its third generation, depending on on how you count these things. But then there are other political movements and other ideological movements who will recognize that kind of the left-wing postmoderns are making inroads. They are a thing and we need to fight back against them. And there are other parts of the political and ideological spectrum that start to adopt some elements of postmodernism and adapt them to their own subjective value agendas, and in effect, you know, fight fire with fire, but just a different kind of fire. So there are now, you know, right-wing postmodernists, right, who are out there. And while the first generation of postmoderns were, uh, you know, all of them uh, atheistic, um, you know, by the time you get into the 80s and on into the 90s, you do see many uh, theologians Right, who are sympathetic to various forms of Christianity or 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 or, or other uh, belief systems, starting to incorporate uh, postmodern notions into into uh, into their religious systems, and so there are postmodern theologians as well. So one example, uh, uh, I haven't written this one up, but uh, you know, if you, and I don't know if it's a little bit too dated. Because uh, you seem to be uh, younger, right? But uh, liberation theology, for example, you know, there there you have people who are strongly Christian. In many cases, they are ordained priests and monks, and and in some cases nuns as well. So they're coming very strongly out of a a, a Christian religious tradition. But then what they do is they go through a certain amount of intellectual training that leads them to be skeptical. You know, can we really? Prove that there is a God, right? And if you're skeptical about proof of God, then you're going to answer right that the, 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 no. And then you say, well, maybe then the important thing is not true, try to prove the existence of God, or even believe that there is a real being out there that has certain features that created the universe and, and who's listening to our prayers and so forth. Right? The important thing about theology just is that there's a value framework, and that uh, the way we, we find meaning in our lives is by committing to a non-rational value framework. It doesn't matter if it is true or not. And that value framework has a certain political component and uh, that we are on the side of the oppressed. And so you take your your religious worldview, mm-hmm. but you, you abandon the, the realist claims or you abandon the metaphysical claims and you just advance it as a way to to, to realize a certain value or political framework in society. And that's a kind of a cartoon version of of liberation theology, but that's very postmodern theology. And the Protestants have their versions of that as well, mm. and so on.
0: Yeah, I, I think there might be even a sort of a prescient form of that theology in the 19th century with, with liberal theology, with the idea of a god who is not omniscient and can't see the future who is himself discovering, which innately sort of brought skepticism to the um, faith and in, in the idea of a god uh, himself, because, you know, you start corroding the immutable features of the Christian god into something that is more irrational and, and less universal. No, I think that,
1: that that's exactly right. You mentioned, yeah, the the uh, the 1800s or the 19th century, and uh, your your voice went garbled for a moment there, but it sounded like you were going in a slightly Hegelian direction, right, where mm-hmm. a God is in process and discovering himself through his continued action in the world, right? Uh, yeah, so that whole Hegelian strain is to abandon. One of the the traditional infinite perfections of God—that is to say, His infinite perfection of knowledge—that God is omniscient, mm-hmm. right? It's to say that God is is perhaps all uh, all powerful, but uh, God does not know the future. The future is not known until He creates it, and then realizes Himself through His creation. But yes, that's that's to take a step back from seeing God as infinite in in that dimension.
0: Right, right.
1: And the timing is important because uh, you know by the time you get to the 1800s already there had been one century of very vigorous natural theology where all of the traditional arguments for the existence of god were argued and counter argued to a very high level of sophistication and in many cases that's to attempt to prove the existence of the traditional perfect god who's omnipotent and omnibenevolent and uh, uh, omniscient and so forth and the creator of the world and then many philosophers and even many religious believers coming to believe that the arguments don't work. And uh, some of them, of course, will then just abandon religion altogether and become agnostic or atheism. So you see that trend developing. But many of the uh, the, the those who want to retain a belief in a God will simply modify the conception of God. Well, maybe he's not omniscient right or maybe he's not uh, omnipotent or maybe he's not omni uh, or, or so forth and so you do get a weakening of god and then the end trend of that is going to be uh, possibly postmodern theology or or atheism
0: mm-hmm. or uh, perhaps a weakening of our epistemological power like with Kierkegaard's leap of faith yes um, right which uh, you outlined very clearly. I, I was actually with the liberal theology going to go to Hegel because you, you outline a very clear through line from Kant to postmodernism in your book, Mm. and uh, showing how the, the legacy of Kantian philosophy and, and the reactionary philosophies led inevitably, it seems, to the postmodernism of the 20th century. And I, I wish we had time to delve into the to the contradictions of, of that. Uh, I, I had an, another question there, but, but maybe we can just end with where you end with the book, which is talking about the, the legacy of the Enlightenment. And you say that the Enlightenment failed to defend its claims in the face of these irrational and eventually postmodern claims and what we need to do now is to essentially reinforce the claims of the enlightenment project to reinforce its arguments so what do you think was lacking in the original enlightenment defense and now that we're living in a kind of a a post post postmodern age what ought we to bring to reinforce the Enlightenment ideals for them to succeed? Yeah, another uh,
1: uh, richly complicated question there. But
0: yes, I do think that we, the, the Enlightenment
1: has been a great success, uh, mm-hmm. philosophically and existentially. And I think that we still are largely living in an Enlightenment world. Uh, but it is true that there's, you know, a vigorous counter-Enlightenment, anti-Enlightenment movement, intellectually, and it has now spilled out, obviously, into the culture, and so we are faulting kind of a multicultural front battle, battle as well. And yeah, I do think that, yes, despite all of its great philosophical achievements and existential achievements, uh, the Enlightenment did have some weaknesses, and it's those weaknesses that the skeptics and the anti-Enlightenment thinkers exploited and exploited them very well. So the the project then is to identify what those weaknesses are, and some of them are are legitimate weaknesses to, to point out. Now, I think the most important one would be the cognitive weaknesses. So the Enlightenment did make some very strong claims about the power of reason, the power of science, scientific method, mathematics, logic. And the ability of basically everyone who's born with normal cognitive equipment to observe their world, figure out the way it works, and to govern their own lives and, and make a go of it right, right, successfully. So those cognitive claims, I think, are the most important ones. Right? The, the name enlightenment is to say that we have figured out how, not in some mystical religious sense, you know, I can you know, go to a cave and smoke some drugs and, uh, and, and receive some key-to-the-universe revelations, but we each have this p- very powerful mind that we can exercise and come to know the way the world works. And If we work together on the complicated projects, then we can jointly, in many cases, figure out things and make the world a better place. So those are very strong claims. I think those claims are true, right? But there's a huge amount of very technical and difficult philosophical work that needs to be done to justify those claims. And so the the human brain and the human mind, we are still, I think, in the early stages of figuring out how that works. So, for example, psychology as a science is still in its infancy. I mean, some people are still having arguments about whether psychology really is a science or whether it's just taking its baby steps toward becoming a mature science, right, and so forth. But you realize it's now only about a century or so since the first schools of psychology that were claiming to be scientific, right, Freudian psychoanalysis and uh, behaviorism in Watson and a little bit later, B.F. Skinner, were being founded. So There's just a huge amount that we need to learn about the mind, and it should be a normal part of the process that the science of how the brain and the mind works is going to go through the normal process. There are lots and lots of hypotheses, and they will be shot down, and then better hypotheses will become coming along. And so we should expect that it's a big project and we are still in the early stages of it. So the postmoderns though want to say, we're just not going to be able to figure it out, it's pointless or I don't want to make the efforts to point it out and so on. So one of the things really is a kind of a gut check do you in effect just want to give up on this complicated project and and pursue your value agenda or do you want to say this is a difficult project and we're not necessarily going to figure it all out in this generation but we're going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So that then is to say we need to have, if we're going to justify the enlightenment project, a good theory of observation and perception. If we're going to say that's the foundational intercourse between the human being and the world. And so we need to uh, have a better theories of perception and to be able to handle all of the skeptical arguments there. We have abstract formulations you're a human being. I'm a human being, right? So, but what is it to say? What, you know, what is this humanness that's you? Because if, when I look at you, you're different in all of your particular features uh, from, from from the way that I am. So, what's the legitimacy of these abstract concepts, uh, and where do we justify their connection to actual reality? And then we go on to formulate propositions, and, we, and that requires grammar. And then we then we're formulating uh, you know paragraphs. and and we want them to be integrated logically. Well, where does logic come from? And we want to do mathematics and statistical analyses. Well, where does mathematics come from and statistics right? and so forth? And all of these things are very complicated and it's expected that there are going to be skeptical uh, attacks that are going to work on the early theories as we're starting to develop all of these. So part of it then is a commitment to saying, look, we are onto something Uh, but the territory is very difficult and we need to save the course uh, and and go forth. So that's one thing. I think another thing though is, uh, and since time is short, uh, I think I would choose kind of the individualism and capitalism theme. That I think a, a big part of it is that the modern world is very complicated and the enlightenment project that created this complex and marvelously complex world, it gives so many people opportunities and so on, but it does put a lot of demands on the individual. Right? You have to think for yourself. And we're not going to tell you what to do and look after. You have to make your own way in the world and decide what you think on politics and religion and the meaning of life. And you have to make it, make it happen. And I do think that there are a lot of people for whom that feels like a burden rather than a liberation. And they, uh, and this is, I don't want to get too psychological here, but I think, and this is only part of the story, but, that for many people, the, the idea that there is some collective group that's going to look after them and make all of the important value decisions for them and provide for them so that they don't have to do it themselves, mm-hmm. that's a comfort right from the get-go. So enlightenment philosophy coming along with its very kind of romantic adventure, take on the world and make it the way that you want, a lot of people shrink from that. And so what we then I think need is, and this goes back to education and parenting, better preparation for young people so that they do have the, the intellectual power and the emotional resilience right, and the physical uh, vigor to be able to take on this challenging life project that the Enlightenment is, is giving to them. And the other part, I think, of course, is uh, is capitalism. I think uh, a lot of people they buy into uh, socialist, communist, fascist, various sorts of anti-capitalist ideologies when they are young. And one of the things we know is that it's very hard for people to change their minds <laughs> about these things, uh, even if there's you know, totally convincing evidence right in the in the face of it. They will they will double down. And so I think it's very easy to be anti-capitalist. You know, there's lots of, uh, you know, uh, arguments. Uh, And if, if when you're young, you haven't said, I'm going to look at the best arguments and the best evidence historically, and I'm going to study lots of economics and political governance and so on before I make up my mind for sure on these things. And that's not going to be, say, until I'm 30 years old, that many people are saying, no, I'm going to make a commitment because this ideology seems sensible to me and they become uh, anti-capitalist. And at that point, they will go through all sorts of rhetorical doubling downs in order to avoid having to say that they are wrong about anything. And so partly then it's going to be that, uh, part of the Enlightenment project was to free the economy, to unleash the power of entrepreneurship uh, uh, and so forth, and the Industrial Revolution, and it created this enormously wealthy Uh, uh, world that we are living in. And so if you are going to celebrate the enlightenment, part of that means that you're going to have to celebrate free market capitalism. And if you're already committed to an anti-capitalist ideology, you're going to recognize (laughs) there's no way I want to give the damn capitalist credit for anything. And that means that I have to go after the enlightenment, which is its parent.
0: Hmm. Well, I, I think that's a beautiful way to come full circle back to where we began or you began with, you know, philosophy as being personally relevant to the individual. And I, I mentioned wanting to return to the dignity of the individual. I wonder if, you know, if postmodernism is in some sense a skepticism toward metanarratives, that in part what is required is, you know, reestablishing a robust meta narrative that can revivify human dignity in such a way that, as you said, establishes what it means to be human in such a way that it, that it gives us the strength and cognitive capacity to, to deal with a very difficult world.
1: Now that's beautifully put. And uh, yeah, so yeah, you and I, we've, we've emphasized the kind of the politics and the epistemological or cognitive right, issues here. But yes, that is another whole area that we could have another conversation on. You know, the, the, the human dignity uh, you know, what is it to be a human being? And another part of the modernist versus postmodernist debate is exactly over what it is to be a human being. Uh, and so the, the the modernists do believe right, that human beings are primarily individuals. Right? I have my own body, my own mind, and I have agency, I have control over my own mind. I can think for myself and formulate my own values and direct my their own course. In, in my life. And on the basis of that, the dignity of the individual and therefore the rights that should be respected uh, politically of the individual become extraordinarily paramount. And it is important that postmoderns come out of a tradition of not at all believing in that understanding of what it is to be a human being. They don't believe in individuals, they don't believe in human agency, and they therefore don't believe in, in human dignity. So another big part of the story is uh, then to say that the theories of human nature are uh, not all of them, but many of them coming out of a kind of an environmental determinist position. The human being is just born a lump of plasticine, right, or a lump of plastic or clay and is totally manipulated and shaped by social forces beyond its control. And to the extent that you believe that, well, then you're not going to believe that in human individual cognition, human agency, or individual rights. Instead, you are a pawn pushed around by forces beyond your control, or you're a plasticine shape. Now, the Marxists are in this tradition explicitly with their environmental determinism. I mentioned earlier the behaviorists. Again, environmental determinism all the way down. In many cases, you know, the deconstruction tradition, right, comes out of the idea, you know, of language, right, operating on a kind of a blank slate of mind, but there's this previously socially constructed set of loosely associated meanings, and individuals are, their, you know, whatever we think of as their minds is shaped by. linguistic community into which they are born. The the, the grammar and the meanings and the connotations and the language games and so forth totally shapes the individual and you can't think outside of your linguistic framework. So from any number of strains you've got an attack on the individual. The individual really just is a, a vehicle through which social forces are operating and again that's going to take you in an an anti-enlightenment direction.
0: Hmm. Well, there are so many more aspects that we could explore, and hopefully maybe sometime in the future we might have the opportunity to do that. A pleasure, yes. In the meantime, thank you so much for the work that you've already done in shedding light on all of these issues. I highly recommend your book, uh, Explaining Postmodernism. That's a great place to start with your work. And I'm incredibly excited and eager to see what you produce in the future. And thank you so much for your time and this discussion. A pleasure, Justin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really good questions.
1: All the best. (laughs)